This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org. I'm Michael Cross, host of the KOSU Daily Podcast. Every weekday, I bring you the biggest Oklahoma stories of the day with reporting and analysis from our team of journalists and partners. Get the news you need to start your day in less than 10 minutes. Find the KOSU Daily in your podcast feed and subscribe now. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross. It's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. The state Senate gathered on Monday to override Governor Sitt's veto on tribal tobacco compacts. Senate Bill 26X would have extended the compacts until December of next year, but the override attempt fell one vote shy of the 32 needed to override Stitt's veto. Senate President Pro Tem Greg Treat says he has the votes to override. So, Neva, what happened here? Well, I think what happened was uh, the problems you always have during summer when you're trying to get enough folks back at a designated time and hour to uh, to take care of business. And in this instance, they were one mem- one vote short of what they needed. But uh, there were nine members that were excused for various reasons on on that day. So I think Pro Tem Treat has been very emphatic about the fact that um, there will be another time um, and they will come back and they will override. I mean, he he says that with some certainty. And I think uh, um, the prospects, just given the fact that they were only one vote shy this week, certainly uh, certainly kind of uh, reflects that possibility. I think the other thing that was fascinating leading up to uh the Senate coming back in on Monday was the fact that the governor on Sunday evening or the Stit for governor um, email, it came from Stit for governor email on a Sunday evening to many Republicans and who that group was across the state and, and how, and how wide and deep, I don't know, but in looking at it, it was this call to kind of a call to marshal the troops uh, that Monday was critical that, um, um, everything kind of came down to this vote, and it was absolutely imperative that uh, folks call their call their senator, let them know that they uh, that they didn't want uh, they they didn't want this to happen. And basically, the governor the the whole message was not wanting uh, not wanting uh, the definition of Indian country to be expanded basically to half the state. So rather than just an override on the on the compact vote. It was a more broad, overarching push by the governor to try to make his case um, about this and not just make it exclusively about the compact, whether or not it would be um, whether or not the vote would be overridden, this extension for a year and on and on on the compact side of the equation. So um, it it didn't seem to get any traction, certainly didn't appear to uh, change votes. I mean, of those that were there and cast votes. So. Um, it, it, it is something that the governor seems to want to double down on, though, in the conversation. It'll be interesting when they come back again, uh, even though everyone says there's basic certainty in the air that, that this would be overridden, it still causes 
um, the political dynamic to be there, that the governor has time now to still make his case one by one, do some arm twisting, political uh, deal making, whatever he wants to do. It just seems to be still a pretty high bar that he's going to be able to stop this from occurring in the legislature. Ryan. Neva, I think you're right. You know, when you talk about certainty, there's there's nothing certain in life but death, taxes, and Ryan Walters ignoring the Constitution. But we are, uh, you know, I, I do think that we will see this ultimately overridden. Uh, I think that the, the pro temp has the votes to do this. It's difficult to get members back during uh, the interim. Uh, yeah, we, we have to remember uh, lawmakers are people, too. Uh, and they're on vacation with their families. They're back at their regular jobs. They're doing things in their district. And, you know, to, to fall one vote short uh, is tough. You know, generally, if you think that uh, they must have thought that they had the numbers, I think, otherwise they wouldn't have put it on the board. Uh, he knew that he had numbers in the bank, uh, meaning that, you know, the absent members that he felt would vote yes if they had been there. So I, I believe that he's there, uh, but I, I, I think that it's difficult to say that anything is certain. Uh, I, 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 do, I do think that Senate President Pro Tem Greg Treat was speaking directly to the This Week in Oklahoma Politics listeners uh, when he said, for those of us that geek out on procedure, uh, <laughs> and that's us, we geek out on procedure. The, the failure to override is not a final action, mm. uh, meaning that they can bring that back up. It's not stuck somewhere. Uh, and as long as the legislative uh, special session uh, is is around, which right now it's to the end of July, heck, they could make it to the end of August if they needed to. Uh, but, you know, as long as that's open, there's an opportunity for them to come back and do that. The rhetoric around the President Pro Temp's uh, uh, comment, commentary on uh, the governor's handling of tribal issues was taken up a notch. And I don't know if it was just because the Pro Temp was tired, it's the summer, you know, he's, he was just governor for a bit uh, himself. <laughs> Uh, and so maybe he feels like he's a little bit more on the, the same executive uh, platform as, as Governor Stitt. But he called the governor's handling of tribal affairs stupid. Uh, you know, that's that's, you know, normally it's, oh, well, I disagree with this or I take issue with this or I think that it's irresponsible, whatever it is. But, you know, he has he is not mincing. He is not mincing any words uh, when it comes to his description of how the governor has handled this or any other uh, affair with tribal nations in the state of Oklahoma. A scathing audit shows Oklahoma misspent millions of dollars in federal pandemic funding. The report from State Auditor Cindy Byrd finds under the program overseen by now State Superintendent Ryan Walters, nearly $2 million went to things like furniture, kitchen appliances, power tools, and entertainment. And now taxpayers are at risk of having to return about $30 million in questionable expenses. Ryan, did any other issues in the audit stand out to you? I think that the... One of the issues that stood out was not only the fact that we may be on the hook to have to pay this money out, uh, but that the auditor found deliberate uh, efforts to move money to preferential uh, individuals uh, and to uh, private schools. I mean, that, you know, this wasn't just, oh, well, you know, they we created a program where they qualify. We saw people applying and receiving uh, grants for money prior to the application process even being open. Uh, that's... That is, uh, you know, when you talk about a level playing field, that's not a level playing field at all. Then we begin to see that of those uh, families that were receiving financial assistance so that they could try to keep their kids in private schools so they could pay the tuition, uh, because a lot of private schools stayed open during the pandemic and, you know, parents wanted to be able to send their kids there. You saw a lot of public school parents thinking about private school options as a way to get their kids back in a classroom. Uh, but 
the overwhelming majority of the families that received that financial assistance reported no economic hardship as a result of COVID, you know, no downturn in their own personal uh, fortunes as a result of COVID. And so it was just free money uh, to individuals sending their kids to private schools. And then if you look at, um, so we may be on the hook for that, uh, but the other part of that is the number of kids that missed out on programs. So we saw because of this mismanagement, uh, Oklahomans that would have otherwise qualified for this money that needed this money, that needed these funds, they just didn't get it. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, thinking back two or three years ago, uh, you know, how desperate uh, Oklahoma families were for, for relief uh, and you know, many more desperate than uh, you know, certainly myself and, uh, and the, the governor and Ryan Walters uh, that needed help. And they just didn't get it because of how these funds are handled. This is the tip of the iceberg. We're going to see a lot more about this. The attorney general is weighing in on this. Uh, you know, the governor and the, the state superintendent's line on this is, uh, you know, some out-of-state management firm, you know, deserves the blame. I think it was Harry Truman said that the, the buck stops with an out-of-state vendor that mismanaged things. That's a convenient scapegoat. Uh, but, you know, the, the uh, governor's handpicked attorney general, uh, John O'Connor, filed a lawsuit against this out-of-state vendor, when Gittner Drummond comes into the office, he, as the new attorney general, he drops the lawsuit and says that it has, has no merit. Uh, so the, the out-of-state vendor uh, deal is only going to last for so long. I think you can get a, maybe a, a couple of weeks in news cycles with that. But the more the AG digs into this uh, and the more the media dig into this, uh, that story is just not going to hold up. Neva. I think that's right. I mean, what we have is the is the first phase. Um, you're right, Ryan. I mean, the eight million in gear funds that was focused on. I mean, mm. in April, when Attorney General Drummond dismissed that lawsuit against Class Wallet, I mean, he basically said end of story on that. And yet, this seems to be the very vendor that uh, many of these folks, when questioned about this this week, uh, kind of hang their head on that it's all, you know, the governor, Ryan Walters, others saying it's all it's all this vendor's fault and trying to deflect where uh, where that's just um, that that's just a, a name calling game going on. And what now we have is the investigative audit has been completed. Uh, Attorney General Drummond has said this now. Uh, opens up um, kind of a, a full view to be able to delve in further uh, with subpoena power from the AG's office, with the ability to do search warrants if necessary, with the ability to amp up the investigation to the next level and be able to follow the money, answer more questions, and get way beyond even what this very comprehensive and exhaustive uh, investigative audit by um, by. Cindy Bird as the auditor and inspector and her folks have done. So uh, I think people will watch with interest. But as we always say, I mean, we talked about this for months and months and into years uh, with Epic and with Swadley's and with many of these investigations, they don't happen quickly. This isn't one hour on law and order and you get the beginning, end and conclusion. I mean, it's a long drawn out process, very deliberative, but I think, uh, I think, you're right, Ryan, with respect to talking about some of these families who were helped and some who needed help that didn't get the help. That's one thing that um, that I've heard uh, more than once this week uh, publicly stated by the attorney general that that this was one of the saddest and most disappointing parts of this whole um, 
the, this whole revelation in the audit was that uh, that that folks, parents, and their children who needed resources did not appear to get them, while those who, by their own admission in some cases, did not need those funds did get them. So you have the CARES funds, you have the GEAR funds, you have many, you know, many elements to this, the stay in, the stay in school program, uh, many of the, the things that were all under the umbrella of this COVID money, this enormous amount of money that states were given, and then um, given the responsibility to administer and to be able to document and properly handle handle those funds. And I think in this instance, uh, in the past, we've seen the State Department of Education uh, have tens and tens of millions of dollars worth of federal funds that they have accounted for. Now we're in a phase where in a new administration with uh, uh, Superintendent Walters and others, I mean, we have this ongoing uh, kind of litany of more questions than answers. And at some point, we've got to get on top of that. And I think uh, it will put a burden on lawmakers coming back again. I mean, uh, who have been in the mix with all of this, uh, with all of these dollars in terms of some oversight and and certainly uh, allocation of some of the resources. It, it's incumbent upon everyone to make sure that uh, the folks that are administering these these funds are qualified. I think that's one of the things the attorney general's raised. Uh, are, are the folks qualified? Are they are they of the ability to be able to manage these significant amounts of uh, funds in these particular programs? So um, again, I, I applaud uh, I, I applaud uh, Auditor Inspector Bird for her work, uh, her office, and what they've done to bring this forward now. And we'll just see the attorney general and others what they do. Uh, as a result of being able to catapult off of this particular investigative report. Governor Stitt approved new controversial rules from State Superintendent Ryan Walters. The rules allowed the Board of Education to downgrade accreditation over materials in school libraries. Attorney General Gettner Drummond says the rules must be directed by the state legislature. Lawmakers did not direct Walters or the State Department of Education to pursue these new rules. Neva, how could the governor approve them? I think I think a lot of people certainly have asked that question. And I think, again, we're in a place where um, people seem to be uh, making their own determination what they want to follow or what they believe the rules or the or the structure is. And it just adds for controversy, potential lawsuits, all kinds of problems. And and really doesn't uh, it really doesn't address what appears to be a a significant problem. I mean, the the issue is more um, more just a continued elevation of a culture war dialogue than it is about specific problems in school districts or in education per se in the state of Oklahoma. And I think out of this, um, we get back to the very question of local control that we've talked about before, even on this program. Um, Republicans uh, have long held the view that local control is is so very important. And particularly when we talk about, uh, you know, local school boards and being able to make decisions at the local level, parents' involvement, um, and then to have this bureaucratic layering of uh, all of these additional, you know, rules or uh, things and that, that are trying to be kind of dropped down on top of it. It just seems like it's a 
a problem, you know, that doesn't appear to be a big problem to a lot of parents in Oklahoma. Even at the meeting, uh, most of the folks that were there were not there supportive of what was going mm-hmm. on. They were there uh, to speak against what was what was going on and to ar- articulate their their view. So I think Oklahoma's getting mired somewhat in in some of this conversation that seems to be going nowhere. And and it's and it can be problematic I, in Utah this this year in their session um they passed uh, they have passed a an obscenity statute that basically uh talked about removing uh graphic violent or sexual content uh from the from their school libraries and as a result of that you had a local board of education that voted to ban the bible for those very instances that mm. they said reflected what the statute that had been passed said so you you come up with this you know, total um, kind of cookie cutter approach, and you get all of these unintended consequences sometimes from from these conversations that don't seem to ever interlock and have a good solution. So again, I think it, it falls back to lawmakers next session. Uh, it'll come back up in a variety of bills, but at some point, we've got to make sure that the State Department of Education can do their job Local school boards are clear and understand what their role is. Uh, teachers and, and superintendents and school districts understand and librarians uh, what what the what the rules are, what the what they need to, to follow that uh, is concrete and black and white so they can all understand it. And I, I think it's regrettable that we continue to have these conversations that seem to be a conversation with no solution. Ryan. Well, you know, I've said this before, but it but it's a real betrayal of the conservative movement uh, that uh, I think Governor Stitt would say that he is a part of, uh, and that Ryan Walters you know, certainly thinks that he's the the, the commander of uh, of the the right wing uh, movement in the state of Oklahoma right now, and, and probably has visions of himself doing that uh, on some national level, whether that's as a, a paid pundit on on a cable show or. Uh, as a you know an appointee somewhere right I mean who knows where his delusions of grandeur are, are pointing him right now but I think that you know the idea that these rules uh, can be signed is you know, sign them you just can't enforce them and when I say it's a portrayal of the conservative movement you know conservatives for uh, decades have fought in the courts to limit the ability of executive agencies to promulgate uh, pass, adopt, and enforce rules that the uh, that they felt were outside of the specific grant of power that the legislature gave that state agency. That's exactly what Gitter Drummond, the attorney general, said in his formal opinion, that state agencies can't do something unless the legislature tells them that they can do it. And you know, that that is a very conservative principle. Uh, you know, I think you know, liberals uh, and this often, you know, whenever you see this in federal courts, it often played out in the context of, you know, say, the Environmental Protection Agency uh, or the inter- and, and the interpretation of something like the Clean Water Act. Uh, you know, the you know, liberals you know, wanted to see a, a more expansive view of, of what that meant uh, so that they could pass more rules that would restrict certain types of activity to protect the environment. And conservatives argued uh, over and over again and were very successful and have been very successful in federal courts at reining in the discretion. Uh, that agencies are able to use. Uh, but that's, you know, I, I think, especially whenever it comes to Ryan Walters, the, the idea that 
he has some commitment to principle uh, is, you know, kind of laughable. Uh, he has a commitment to his own agenda here. Uh, he doesn't really, I don't think he really cares whether or not these rules are enforced or enforceable or whether they were passed lawfully. Uh, and in fact, if there is a lawsuit, which not if, when there is a lawsuit that is brought uh, challenging these rules uh, as being uh, you know, outside of the agency's authority and power, uh, he'll use that to try to make himself a martyr and a victim and that, you know, the courts are, you know, really you know, giving the green light to pornography in schools. The, the attorney general is pro-pornography in schools and, the, you know, that they've all fallen victim to the woke left. Uh, that's the press release. You know, that's that's where this is going. You know, again, it doesn't really he doesn't really want to do anything. He wants to be able to say something. Uh, and you know, that's that's what we've teed up at this moment. And I think one of the things on one of those two rules, it's important to point out the fact that most districts already had policy in place. We've mm -hmm. talked about that. I mean, this is not something where there it was the Wild West and everyone was doing whatever they wanted and there was no uh, there was no policy. The districts have, for the most part, across the board policies in place. And again, it's a policy that is locally driven. I mean, if there was a complaint in many instances, the policy is basically fairly simple. It's some a parent files a complaint, they appoint a committee, typically it's the principal, the librarian, the parent, the, they look at the, the book or books in question, they read them, they discuss them, they make a determination, a decision's made, there is an appeal that they can, the parent can make uh, to the uh, to the school board at that point. So there's a process in place, and it hasn't been overused from anybody's uh, information that uh, has been forthcoming in the legislature. When people have asked how many times has this uh, has this really ensued, there haven't been very many, or at least haven't been publicly publicly stated. So again, I think you're. I think the point is well taken that. These were rules that weren't, in, for the most part, necessary. They were talking points. They were they were something for a bigger conversation, but not something that was reality on the ground in the school districts that they were being confronted with and and needing either direction or trying to make their own determinations at the local level how they would handle it because for the most part it already is in place. A new study finds Oklahoma is producing 64 times more marijuana than needed by consumers. The report was commissioned by the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority, where officials say the significant oversupply is likely funneling large amounts of cannabis out of state and is adding to the illegal market. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this report? Well, I think that those of us that have been following the medical marijuana industry uh, for the last several years, like myself, both as a as an advocate for the industry uh, and an advocate for uh, continued reforms, we've known that there's been an oversupply issue. Um, you know, the fact that we have this oversupply issue is one of the reasons that uh, I felt so strongly that state question 820 uh, was necessary for the state of Oklahoma because you had a, you know, a, a, an enormous amount of supply of, of medical marijuana in the state of Oklahoma, but only 10% of Oklahomans have medical marijuana cards. And so you have a very limited a group of legal consumers that can purchase that product. You know, so that's done a couple of things. One, it's created a real problem for those businesses out there that are doing everything that they can to follow the law. They're, you know, they're, they're crossing all their T's and dotting all their I's and they're doing it twice just to make sure that they're in compliance. And I want to say that we, we hear a lot about the, uh, the illegal illicit marijuana trade. I don't want to say that that doesn't exist. It certainly does. 
but for the most part, if you look at business licenses in the state of Oklahoma right now, businesses that are running medical marijuana operations, grows, processors, dispensaries, uh, they are uh, by and large following the law and they're paying an enormous amount in taxes uh, and they're benefiting their local communities. They're providing great jobs uh, for the people that are able to work there uh, with benefits and health insurance and stuff like that. That's those, there, is a, there is an enormous positive uh, benefit that the medical marijuana industry is bringing to Oklahoma economically, not even to begin to talk about the medicinal benefits of having it and the criminal justice reform benefits of having medical marijuana program. But because we are limited to selling to only 10% of Oklahomans, uh, that's driven prices uh, way down. It's made it very difficult for legal operators to compete and to stay in business. Uh, and as that's happened, we are going to continue to see you know, many uh, businesses that would otherwise have kept their doors open, close their doors. Um, you know, I do think that uh, the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority uh, has really stepped up uh, their efforts to uh, do more enforcement of regulation. Uh, I think that they're getting better at that. Uh, you know, it's not always perfect, but, you know, I know the folks over there, they're incredibly smart. Uh, and I think that they are, um, you know, very committed to trying to get this right. And you know, this is a young program. I mean, if you think about the fact we're, you know, we still are ironing out issues and and regulating uh, and enforcing alcohol laws, uh, you know, and that's been something that we've been working on for over a century. Mm-hmm. And this is a relatively young program, and we've made a lot a lot of progress in a very short period of time. But uh, yes, we need we need more enforcement, and we need to do everything we can to make sure that those lawful businesses uh, are able to stay competitive and keep their doors open, because that is the best check that we've got against the black market. Neva. Well, I do think that uh, OMMA was wise to commission this study. I think the fact that uh, the data comes from the the state's new uh, seed to sale tracking system, as well as the surveys that they did with uh, many of these uh, um, 1,300 licensed marijuana users. I mean, I think it is uh, important information. And you're right, Ryan, when you key in on the fact that that the enforcement side, I think, is the big the big issue. I mean, uh, this this medical marijuana program has been in place for uh, coming up on six years, but uh, the enforcement side there there's there's still a, a great need for that, and I think this this study basically uh, points uh, points to that direction. Um, and when you when you think about uh, just all of the other uh, kind of sticking points that need to be addressed, having data uh, certainly helps to move the needle, both uh, in the conversation within agencies, but certainly in conversations with lawmakers who are constantly looking for that kind of information. So um, I think it's interesting, too, when we talk about what we're doing here in Oklahoma, other states that have been looking at uh, possibly uh, um, passing a medical marijuana programs of uh, places like Mississippi, I've read articles where they talk about that uh, that they really use Oklahoma kind of as the cautionary tale of all of the oversight struggles that we've had and, um, you know, have really kind of used, uh, uh, have used Oklahoma as kind of the, uh, um, the, the place to look at the things to avoid uh, because of all of the, uh, uh, all of the things that we have seen in the early few years of, uh, of this program being in existence. And, you know, and, and, and I certainly would, continue to argue Ryan and I will never agree on the um, on the idea that the legalization of marijuana in Oklahoma would be a would be a good thing or uh, would uh, 
aid in any way in terms of the conversation here, both on production outpacing demand or the fact that there is the legitimate uh, black market issue, the out of state, you know, the movement of, you know, so much uh, of this moving out of state and uh, all of the um, all of the criminal element that goes with that. And then in, in local communities, all of the issues that they continue to have uh, with water usage and with uh, uh, with the crime element and all of the other things that go along with it. Yes, there's the economic uh, uh, driver in terms of jobs and, and things that happen with these uh, uh, with the with the industry itself. But I think for Oklahoma and certainly for lawmakers who basically didn't get much done on this subject in the past mm -hmm. session, um, rather than just kind of dust, you know, kind of uh, move along and not think about it again, I think it's going to be incumbent upon them to really uh, drill down on the issues, particularly on on the law enforcement side. You just can't hire people and with a clipboard and go out and think you're going to uh, safely be able to regulate uh, the industry. I mean, you're going to have to have a very sophisticated effort. Uh, on the law enforcement side against uh, some very bad actors. And so I hope that this becomes a conversation uh, that can move forward because clearly this study is uh, kind of one of the first things on the table that points to many of these problems. Well, and, and I don't know how I, you know, found myself in this position of, you know, kind of, you know, being from, you know, my, my, uh, where my political launching point to, going around and extolling the virtues of, of capitalism around the state of Oklahoma <laughs> and, and, and you know, talking like I'm Ayn Rand or something like that. But I will push back on, on these states and other policymakers from around the country that say that Oklahoma has a cautionary tale. I think that we've, uh, we've definitely had our growing pains um, and we're starting to get a handle on, on a lot of this. You know, a big part of that is, well, and also, but the free market element of this has really made us one of the most innovative and competitive markets in, in the United States. And as marijuana reform continues around the country, Oklahomans and Oklahoma businesses are gonna be well poised uh, to, to be a big player in that. Also say that the uh, the marijuana industry actors themselves, the good actors, they're the ones that want more enforcement than anyone else. Uh, you know, my, my clients call me all the time and they want more enforcement. Um, and then, you know, finally, I'll just touch, you know, Neva touched on the data piece and you know, full disclosure, I represent Metric, the state's seed to sale provider. Uh, but getting information uh, and having a closed uh, seed to sale system that allows regulators to track marijuana in the state of Oklahoma better than they've ever been able to, that's all, that hasn't even been operational for uh, maybe coming on like right a year at this point. Uh, so with that, you add that with the leadership of uh, Director Adrian Berry and her team. You know, I, I feel like we are really on, on a good path moving forward. I know that local communities are, are struggling out there uh, with a lot of these issues. Local communities are also the beneficiary of, of new jobs, they're the beneficiary of, of a new tax base. Uh, and it's, you know, how do we balance those two things and, and make sure that this program grows in the right direction? And I think that, I think that we're, in large part, uh, headed that way. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. This is the final episode for this week in Oklahoma politics for the summer. Ryan, Neva, and I are taking a break for just a couple of months, and we will look forward to returning on September 8th. But you can still catch up on past episodes at KOSU.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association. 
physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org.